Uh, we are in Ecclesiastes 3 this morning, so if you have uh, a Bible, go ahead and make your way there. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 554 uh, is where you'll find um, today's text. Uh, reflecting on his study of Ecclesiastes, uh, an author and pastor named Peter Barnes writes this. He says, We seem to have something in common with the angels and something in common with the cockroach. So here we are, Barnes says, with eternity and madness in our hearts. And I think that that so well captures the, the real experience of our lives, as the author of Ecclesiastes puts it, under the sun. Life in this world, in, in the world that is made by God, but, but broken and fractured by sin. We have both eternity and madness in our hearts. We long for something more than what we can simply see or what we experience in our day-to-day lives. We have the hope of immortality and at the very same time, the inevitability of returning to the dust. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes points to this, but this third chapter in particular helps us see, see this in a, in a concise, condensed kind of way. So I want to jump right into that this morning. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, verse 16, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. 
Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts that we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and in all obedience. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Two things that we'll explore uh, in light of Koheleth, this preacher king's words here in Ecclesiastes 3. The tyranny of time and the dilemma of death. So first, the tyranny of time. Uh, One of the most familiar passages in the book of Ecclesiastes is this poem at the start of chapter 3 about time. Uh, I thought about asking Jordan and our worship team to dress up this morning like the birds and, uh, and to sing that for us, turn, turn, turn. Some of you probably had that melody going through your head even as I was reading those words. Uh, they were all about the clothes. They were ready to do it, but it was like a multi-year commitment of hair and then a mustache for Jordan. He has another job that he wants to keep, so it didn't come together the way. I think he made the right call on that. But Koholeth writes here, there is a time for every matter under heaven. And then he lists, as you heard, pairs of opposites. Birth and death, planting and plucking, killing and healing, weeping and laughing, tearing and sowing, silence and speaking, loving and hating, war and peace. On one hand, this is encouraging. This is encouraging because it means that we have a category for everything. It means we have a category in our lives for everything. It normalizes the myriad of experience, the experiences that encompass life under the sun. But... And Derek Kidner gets into this a little bit if you're doing one of the Bible studies with us in Ecclesiastes this fall in his commentary. If, uh, this is also an, an oppressing thing. There's an oppressiveness to this reality. Why? Because if there's a time for everything, if there's a time for everything, the cumulative effect of that can feel like nothing. And what is done today can be undone tomorrow and then redone the next day and then undone again the day after that. More personally, uh, we can see ourselves become something that we never imagined we would be. And Kidner writes about that this way. He says, who would have imagined that the day would come when I find myself doing such and such and seeing it as my duty? So the peace-loving nation prepares for war, or the shepherd takes the knife to the creature he has earlier nursed back to health. The collector disperses his hoard, friends part in bitter conflict. The need to speak out follows the need to be silent. Moreover, how do we know what time it is? How do we know if this moment is the right moment to laugh or to mourn? How do we know if this is the right time to keep or to cast away? Does not much of our sin uh, and the damage that we do to our own lives and the lives of other people come from picking the wrong thing in the wrong moment? With a time for everything, in other words, we can rationalize and justify anything. And we can rationalize and justify anything for whatever motive we might have in that moment. So this is the tyranny of time. Uh, Not only that we are on this treadmill of repetitive, ultimately unproductive ebbs and flows, but the way that Koholeth writes this, it seems like these times are outside of our control. His tone here, the way he writes this, is that these things are impressed upon us. 
And it creates a ton of complexity and confusion in our lives, does it not? Paralysis, even. What am I supposed to do? What season, what time is this? It introduces this fog, or to use the the title of the sermon series, the smoke through which we have difficulty seeing things clearly. If you've been with us in this series, you'll recall that Koholeth here is walking through this quest that he has undertaken to find meaning and purpose in his life. And up front, at the very beginning, he states his conclusion. All is vanity. And so the rest of the book is him detailing how he arrived at that result. It's the pursuit of meaning, it's the pursuit of purpose, with this one assumption that God is, is either absent or inconsequential. He undertakes that quest as if God is not there, not at the center of things. So to import our modern terminology, uh, we might say that this is the quest of a secular humanist or of an agnostic. And because of this tyranny of time, because of this fog and this complexity in our lives, because there's a time for everything, the secular humanist or the agnostic will be forced in one of two general directions. Reductionism or relativism. Reductionism or relativism. Some become reductionistic. So it's too hard to know whether this is a time for war or a time for peace. I'll just choose to believe instead that it's always a time for peace. I'll be a unilateral, unconditional pacifist. War is never justified. Or I'll go the other way. War is always justified. If there's a conflict to be had, let's have it. Or in another example, it's always time to speak. It's always a time to use your voice and speak to whatever's going on around you, whether you know anything about that or not. Or it's never a time to speak up. It's always a time to remain in the background and never speak up courageously or never be bold. As you're hearing, I hope this is reductionistic. And it's tempting because it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier. The other direction that people often go is relativism or subjectivism. There is a time for everything. Uh, Life is situational, but with no reference point outside of myself, relativism essentially means that we just do what we feel like. We just do whatever seems best to us in that particular moment. And you'll hear this voice in, in modern vernacular as, speak your truth, live your truth, without any regard or reference to if there's actually some truth outside of my truth, quote-unquote, or, or your truth. In case you haven't picked up on this, Koholeth's entire quest is fueled by that kind of relativism. Eat and drink Find enjoyment in your toil. He, as we read in these past couple weeks, he pursues and lays hold of everything he wants. He keeps his heart from no pleasure. He pursues and obtains all wisdom and all wealth. And by nearly every measure, he's completely successful in that pursuit, except that his conclusion to the whole thing is, it's all meaningless and it's all empty and it's all vain. If there's nothing fixed outside of ourselves if we really are at the center of our own lives, if it really is on us to create meaning and to create purpose for our lives, then time will be our oppressive tyrant. Time will be our oppressive tyrant. It can be no other. It can be no other. We will either be reductionistic and ignore half of real life or we'll become relativistic and have only the fickle, ever-shifting, quote-unquote, foundation 
of opinions and perceptions to guide us. And as soon as we make progress in one aspect of our lives, the season, the time will change and all of that, all that was done will now be undone. But, and this is where it goes next in Ecclesiastes 3, what if there really is something or someone outside of us? Not an impersonal force like fate, but a personal God. Remember that there's an ultimate conclusion to the book of Ecclesiastes that goes beyond the proximate conclusion of this quest. The quest is what leads Koheleth to declare, all is vanity. But at the end of the book, we are left with this reality of God. That's the end of Ecclesiastes, the reality of God, that God is there, and that he will bring everything into judgment. Scattered throughout this book, then, we see that ultimate conclusion break through into the quest, break through into the proximate conclusion. Uh, And verse 11 here in chapter 3 is one of the most spectacular moments, at least in my humble opinion, of that ultimate reality breaking through. Verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. What an amazing series of statements. What an amazing series of statements. What an audacious series of claims. There's a time for everything, and God, this personal being outside of us, has made all of it beautiful in its time. That there's a a beautiful, a good purpose to everything, not just peace, but war, not just birth, but death, not just building up, but breaking down. And again, in, in, in one way, in some ways, this will settle us, and in another, it will terrify us. It's settling to know that there's purpose and there's design behind everything, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. It's terrifying that everything that we see and experience would be called beautiful, especially things like our suffering and our pain. There's also here a settling and terrifying reality of our humanity that's introduced, that God has put eternity into our hearts, yet we can never find out eternity. We can never find out what God has done from beginning to end. So think about it this way. This is the predicament of our existence as human beings in our lives under the sun. You are hardwired to long for more than you can ever attain in this life. You are hardwired to know more than you can ever know. You are hardwired to seek something so far beyond yourself, so far beyond the constraints of the tyranny of time, but you are left to sort that out while immersed within the very constraints of time. There's an author named Peter Kreeft, and he articulates the predicament like this. He says, We experience only time, and yet we desire eternity, timelessness. He says, kind of exasperated, Why, for heaven's sake? Where do we ever learn of this thing called eternity to desire it? Why, if our existence is totally environed by time, do we not feel at home in it? Do fish complain of the sea for it being wet? Yet we complain of time. There there is never enough time for anything. Time, our natural environment, is our enemy. And Kreef then goes on to say, however, innate desires bespeak real objects. So if there is hunger, there is food. 
And what Kreef says is, there is an innate hunger within us for eternity. Our desire for eternity, our divine discontent with time, is hope's messenger. In other words, this predicament, our constantly being discontented with time, that points us to a reality beyond it. And as it did with Koholeth so many centuries ago, it orients us to be people who seek and to long for fulfillment in the one place that it can be found, which is God himself, which is the reality of an eternal God and a relationship with the eternal author of all life, the one whose scripture elsewhere says was and is and is to come. As Augustine, St. Augustine famously put it in his book, Confessions, you have, he's saying to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Now again, verse 11, it's this ultimate reality breaking through into the quest, but the quest we'll see continues wrestling with the vanity of everything. So second, let's talk about the dilemma of death. The dilemma of death. Lest you get too encouraged too early in the book, which is not the tone of Ecclesiastes, Coalith turns next to injustice and death. Injustice and death. And we'll talk more about injustice next week, but note some of the progression here because these aren't separate things. There's a progression to the way he's writing. There's a time for everything. God makes everything beautiful in its time. And then verse 17, there's also a time for God's judgment of the righteous and of the wicked. And so the natural question that follows It's implicit here, and throughout the centuries since, it's been either implicit or explicit in every generation of humanity since. If God is going to judge, if there is a time for that, if all the evil and wickedness and injustice in the world is going to be judged, why not now? Why not now? Why is the time for that not today? And this is not just a struggle confined to Ecclesiastes. This is a refrain of all of Scripture. Why do the wicked prosper? And just the the simple pleading with God, how long, O Lord? This is Psalms and Job. This is Romans. This is Revelation. And the maddening answer that is given in this text and in elsewhere is not only do we not know, we can't know. It's that we can't know that we are, as Ecclesiastes 3 puts it, but beasts who will return to the dust just like every other living thing. That we, verse 22, cannot see what comes after us and in that kind of limitedness will never understand in full the ways of God. To quote Peter Kreeft one more time, he writes this, we keep asking life, what is your meaning? We keep asking life, what is your meaning? And life responds by asking us, what is yours? What is yours? In other words, who's really on trial here? Who gets to ask the questions? In this quest, Koheleth is looking at life outside of a God-centered view of the world. And if that's the case, if there's nothing outside of himself, then the anger and the frustration at time, the longing for something more beyond time, that makes absolutely no sense. Why? Because we share the same fate as our dogs and cats. As the squirrel that you ran over when you were hurrying to get here this morning. As the family goldfish that found a new home in the sewer 
and I don't mean to prompt like, you might have some conversations at home with, I know, some of the young folks in here. <laughs> Apologize in advance a little bit for that, but it'd be good. It'd be good to, in, in light of Ecclesiastes to open that up a little bit. What happens to the goldfish? And, Even for those of us that do have a God-centered view of the world, um, be humbled by this reality. Be sobered by this reality. We will return to the dust. We who have a God-centered view of the world fly past that all the time because it's uncomfortable. But there is truly a creatureliness, a beastliness about our lives that we are prone to forget. And because of that, we're inclined to put life on trial. We forget the beastliness, creatureliness, the dustness of our existence, and we put God on trial, or we put life on trial. We're like Job, demanding an answer from God. And then when God finally does show up, God flips the entire thing around. No, 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 Job. You answer me. You answer me. Where were you when the earth was formed? And the only reason that you can even approach me, that you can even think deeply and long for an answer to the complexities and difficulties of life is because I breathe life into the dust of the ground. Don't forget, Job. It's to that dust you will return. It's a great illustration of this that plays out in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Like him, when we begin to act as if we are at the center instead of God, The recourse often, the helpful and necessary recourse for us is to be reminded of our creatureliness, our beastliness. Nebuchadnezzar, if you recall, or if you want to read that later in Daniel 4, was driven from society. His body was drenched with the dew. His hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. His nails grew as long as the talons of a bird. Why? Because he fancied himself a god when he was but a beast. There is, of course, uh, so much more we could say on these two topics, time and death. Uh, Within the constraints of time, the tyranny of time this morning, we can't say everything that could be said about it. Um, But here's what I want us to see. That you, that you, man, woman, child, that you are an eternal beast, You are an eternal beast. We are but beasts, dust that will return to the dust. And yet, there's something that differentiates us from the rest of the creatures of this world. And it's there in verse 11. That we have eternity written on our hearts. And yet, as that verse concludes, we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So there is simultaneously a glory and a grime that will characterize our lives because of that. Just like that Peter Barnes quote that I shared at the beginning, we have something in common with the angels and we have something in common with the cockroach. We have eternity and madness in our hearts. There's complexity and there's confusion and there's joy and there's sorrow and there's hopes and longings and there's answers and there's questions that will follow us all of the days of our lives because of this. And here's the realization that Koholeth ultimately comes to. All of that, all of that has been ordained by God. That both your deep longing for eternity and your inability to find it in this life is from the hand of God. 
And this will lead you, if you're honest, to conclude one of two things. That God is either completely monstrous or that God is completely good. We will have to get off of the fence that so many of us in our culture prefer to sit on our entire lives. God is either that kid, that angry kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass, watching the complexity and the toiling and the striving of our lives and laughing at our inability to get the satisfaction that we long for. Or he is supremely good in everything, including the impossible paradox, the the predicament of our existence. Why is that? Because if both our deep longing to understand and our inability to understand are from the hand of God, what that means is that we must remain eternally dependent upon him. And what the rest of the word of God, the whole counsel of God will teach is that this indeed is our supreme good. To be forever actively dependent upon God. Not to understand everything so that we no longer need him, but to remain with him. Trace what we know of the story of God from this point, the centuries that follow, and what we see is that salvation is found in Jesus Christ, in being specifically united with Jesus. This is what it means to be saved, that he has made us his sons and daughters, welcomed us into his family, that he has made us a kingdom of priests to God who reign with him, for all eternity. If in this life we were ever able to find out everything of God and everything of eternity, if we were able to escape the constraints of time, if we were able to successfully hold death at bay, this would not be our salvation. This would be our utter ruin. This would be our utter ruin because it would lead us away from union with Christ. It would lead us away from ongoing active dependence upon the author of all life, the author and perfecter of our salvation. So may you this morning and this week and in the days to come perceive that eternity truly is written on your heart. And may you lean into that longing that is there. Seek out what can be known. Seek out what God has been pleased to reveal about himself and about this world but also perceiving that you are but dust that will return to the dust. Recognize that this pursuit will always come up short, that it must come up short if it is to be your salvation. May your longings lead you not to understand eternity, but to know the eternal God who is there. Amen. Let me pray for us. We confess, God, our Father, author of all life, sustainer of all that is. We confess the difficulty, the complexity of this life that we often do not perceive the time or the season, that we cannot perceive how you make everything beautiful and it's time that we struggle to believe that, to see that. We ask that you would Continue to to draw us to yourself. That this longing you have put in us for more than we can see, more than we can know in this life, and yet we can't find out all of it, that it would lead us to what we can know. The highest and clearest expression of which being illustrated at this table, that Jesus came into this world for us. That he imparted great meaning and purpose 
to our lives and to everything that you made through his redemption, through his saving work. Help us to be those that constantly are dependent upon you, that don't, that don't find the things that we long for and see that as truly good because it leads us to know you and to cling to and to be dependent upon you. And as we get ready to come to this table this morning, would you again meet us in that ongoing active dependence that is true of each and every one of us? Would you sustain us again by your spirit? We pray that in your name. Amen.